Next Chapter Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History for Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most <laughs> people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, Mom. exactly. There are so many stories of Black History that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to every episode of Black History for Real early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Migration is going to be one of the biggest challenges to how we understand organizing and place and identity in the South. People may think that, you know, the undocumented person has a specific stereotype. I mean, that's not true. But it's often overlooked how many come and there are doctors, there are engineers, there are some lawyers. I mean, I think you're seeing, you know, the city has grown and has provided more opportunities when you think about, yeah, what, what the city is looking like. It's more and more looking like the diversity that exists. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear, but it's like just the South got something to say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Our New South, a podcast series presented by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina, with the generous support from the Knight Foundation. My name is Kevin Blackstone, coming to you from College Park, Maryland, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Robert Green, a professor of history at Claflin University. And we truly thank you for tuning in today. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing the concept of the New South and how it's evolved with academics, activists, and creatives. We'll investigate the South, asking questions of our expert guests in key areas like socioeconomic mobility, voting rights, and discriminatory practices that have shaped the South over the decades leading up to today's challenges. We thank you for joining us on this journey and ask that you please tell your friends and family about us. Follow the show, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Okay, let's get to today's episode of the show. Today's episode of Our New South focuses on immigration and how the rise in immigration to the South in the past 20 years has reshaped the cultural and socioeconomic landscapes of the South. We'll also explore what the future holds for the South as the rise in northern black families and immigrant families moving to the southern cities is changing the demographics of the South. We are excited to have three accomplished guests joining us today, each with unique stories about how the rise of immigrants and refugees moving to the South has affected the work that they do in their communities. But before we get to our guests, I would like to ask Dr. Robert Green to provide us with some brief insight on immigration in the South. And I got to tell you, Robert, when I think of immigration to the South, I did not think of the variety of people that we would be talking about. Latin America, Middle Asia, Africa. These are all parts of immigration to the New South. And what's really funny is, as someone who's grown up in the South, I have to acknowledge that even the last 10 to 15 years, I've seen some of this change on the ground right here in South Carolina. 
certainly being able to attend things like Caribbean festivals, Arab American festivals, and so forth has really brightened up South Carolina and the entire South. So this was certainly an eye-opening episode for me. And, you know, one of the things I've always thought about the South historically is that it has been hostile to outsiders. But on this podcast, we're actually talking about a South that is being welcoming not only to outsiders, but people from across the water. Exactly. As long as you don't put any sugar in your grits. (laughs) Thank you very much. When one thinks of immigration to the United States, images of Ellis Island in New York often come to mind. However, the South has also had a history of immigration. Certain groups, such as the Irish in the 19th century or the so-called Mississippi Chinese of the Delta region, made the South their home during the long history of immigration to the U.S. And of course, we cannot think of the South without considering the largest migrant group to the region, Africans, who were brought to the American South as enslaved peoples for centuries. When the term the New South was first coined by Henry Grady in the 1880s, it was in part to show that the South was open for business to the rest of the world. But the South's population did not match this openness until deep into the 20th century. This was thanks to two important landmark pieces of legislation. First, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, known to most Americans as the Hart-Seller Act, dramatically revised early legislation that used a quota system to privilege immigration from Western and Northern Europe. It eliminated discrimination in who could obtain visas, but at the same time placed a cap on immigration from Latin America. Now, this act was sparked by the civil rights movement and questions of race and ethnicity in the 1960s United States. And it opened the way for millions of new immigrants from places such as Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, who we now think of as contemporary versions of immigrants to the U.S., By 1986, President Ronald Reagan and a democratically controlled Congress passed an Immigration Reform and Control Act, which granted a legal status to millions of previously undocumented immigrants, most of whom were from Latin America. Since those two pieces of legislation were signed, immigration rates to the South and the Sun Belt have skyrocketed. Not only has immigration been encouraged through the economic growth in the Sun Belt, But refugees from conflicts all over the world have come to call the South home. From the Hmong from the Vietnam War, to Syrian refugees from their civil war, to Afghan refugees fleeing the war in Afghanistan, and so forth. With increased debates about immigration, most notably the failed passes of a new Immigration Act in 2006-07, the South has become a focal point of this debate. Laws such as Alabama's HB 56, or South Carolina's Legal Immigration Reform Act, have shown how immigration and the so-called browning of the South became political flashpoints in the states of the former Confederacy. Still, the arrival of various immigrant groups has added to the cultural and culinary diversity of the region. The fusion of Southern dishes with other national cuisines, for example, has become a hallmark of many restaurants in the South and across the country. The growth of the sport of soccer across the South can be traced in part to immigrants from Latin America who have brought their love of the global game with them to the South. In short, part of the question of the New South relies on thinking through about the South as a region that is very different thanks to millions of new inhabitants who have come to call the South home over these last 60 years. (laughs) 
Our first guest is Sil Gonzo, the executive director of Our Bridge in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our Bridge provides safe after-school academic support to refugee and immigrant families. Sil is a native of Argentina and came to the United States as an immigrant herself. Our New South welcomes Sil Gonzo. All right, we're off and running. Well, thank you again so much for uh, for doing this. And I would really like to have you introduce yourself to our listeners. So uh, where are you from? How long have you been here? And what is it that you do? All right. So thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me. It's uh, an honor to be here and, and for the opportunity to let me share the story of our bridge. Um, I am Sil Ganso. I am from Argentina. I've been living in Charlotte since 2003. So um, just over 20 years, exactly half of my life, I've been in Charlotte. Um, and I love it. I think that the city, it's the... Um, it's welcoming and it's inclusive, and I'm just proud to be a part of it. Um, what I do, I work with refugee and immigrant families that are new to the United States, specifically to our community. And um, I lead an organization that I founded in 2014 to provide acculturation, education, and really support as families try to start a new life. In the United States, it's not easy to leave everything behind and come to a new place where you know no one. We do a lot of advocacy to and yeah, just supporting families in anything it is that they need to start a successful life here. And, and what originally brought you here? Oh, okay. I came as an au pair. So I was not supposed, I am one of the ones that wasn't supposed to stay. I fell in love, which is a very cliche story. <laughs> I met my husband, I think it was about six weeks after I arrived to Charlotte. And the funny story is, I... Argentinians, we drink this tea. It's like mate. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like a, it's like a, it's a tea that comes in a little cup and you drink it through a straw, but you need a special sherba to drink it. It's like dry tea. And I was looking for sherba. So I needed to find Argentinian people to help me find it because I had run out. And the first Argentinian person I met, I ended up like marrying him <laughs> because there weren't so many of us. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the story. Um, and that kind of brings us to this idea of how much Charlotte has grown um, because there weren't really many Argentinian people in, in the early 2000s. But yeah, I mean, I met my husband and fell in love with him, with Charlotte, and we have two kids and I'm still here. So and so that inform your decision to start the organization that you have since you were working with children and working with families did you see the difficulty of trying to to make that transition I think the the experience of myself trying to make the transition was kind of what prompted me years later to start our bridge I never thought I was going to end up doing this work I actually applied to work um, as an administrative assistant after my younger daughter was born. This was 2010. I started working um, as an admin at an after-school program that was completely normal, you know, just traditional mm. after-school program. And I was their Spanish-speaking office person. Um, and that's when I learned about the number of immigrants that come to Charlotte. And that's when I learned that there were so many refugee families resettled in Charlotte. I had no idea. And it blew my mind. And because I've always been also very um, fascinated by cultures and language and food and dress and flags and just the idea of just feeling proud as I was feeling proud of my own culture, 
I kind of clicked with the families as they were arriving. And I started learning about the Nepali culture and Somali culture. And um, I started making friends and, and building relationships with so many families. And we didn't even speak the same language. So after, you know, when you go past that first phase of understanding the beautiful parts of the culture and the food and the um, festivities and the, and the, you know, the celebrations, you actually start understanding the challenges of starting over as a refugee. I didn't know that refugees had 90 days to start over. That's how much, um, how many days of support they get from the programs. For, and so there are two resettlement agencies in Charlotte that provide the support, but it's just 90 days. And I know for a fact that 90 days is not enough <laughs> to understand a whole new culture. And I spoke English when I came. So it, I couldn't even imagine how hard it must be to come mm. and go through all of that, not speaking English and with children. It, it kind of get me to self-educate on the process of refugee resettlement, what happens before, what happens during, what happens after. And that took me to the understanding and investigating really what resources were available what kind of language access was there, culturally humility. I mean, what was provided to the families besides, you know, here's the factory, go work, and here's an apartment, go live. Um, and I learned that there was just nothing. 2010, it was, it was, there were a few groups that supported refugees. It was very, very little. People didn't know a lot. So I decided to when the program I was working for, it was a private company. They decided to dissolve the company and close that program. So I just took it over, basically. And I um, I had already made a lot of connections with families, with the kids, with the parents, with teachers, with neighbors. And I remember just going on the computer and just typing, you know, how to start a not-for-profit in North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, so we started a not-for-profit and, and the after-school program is what I knew how to do, but I wanted to offer an after-school program that was Number one, led by immigrants and staffed by immigrant and refugee staff that was focused on not specifically the academic achievement, but the English acquisition and then their social emotional well-being, cultural appreciation, and really give parents a peace of mind to know that their kids were going to be cared for, but they were going to be respected in their beliefs, in the traditions, and their cultures. Thank you. No, and, and still, I thank you so much for that information. Um, I think a lot of our listeners in particular will be intrigued to know more about some of the refugee communities that are in Charlotte right now. So could you tell us a bit about some of the groups you've, you've dealt with and, and what brought them to Charlotte in particular? Yeah, so when, when we started, we had a large number of Nepali families. And about like half of the kids in the program when we started were Nepali. And of course we had Central America and um, Mexico were two of the Latin American communities that were um, mostly represented, but then started to shift. And then we have by 2014, 2015, Burmese families started arriving and they um, enrolled in our bridge. Central American families also was um, a, a big number coming in in 2016, 2017. And then, of course, in 2021, when the U.S. got off Afghanistan, we had a large influx of Afghan families. And right now, the families that we work with are about 48% are Spanish speaking and from all over Latin America, like Caribbean, Central America, South America. We have Brazilian families as well. And then the other half, I would say like about 
15% are Burmese, Chen, Karen, Karani, and we have a large number of Afghanistan and other Middle Eastern countries. Um, of course, we have a few from Congo, um, Ethiopia, Eritrea. So it's a very, it's a very large mix. And um, within our staff, like I said, we have 45 people and about 85% come from somewhere else, which is amazing and so cool. Wow. Now that is truly extraordinary. And as a follow-up, we're talking a lot about, of course, refugees in Charlotte, but to kind of zoom out of that for a second, we all know that immigration to the South in general has risen over the last 20 or 25 years. So could you talk a bit about some of the challenges that are facing immigrants coming to Charlotte in particular, and some of the things that you've noticed have actually changed in terms of fueling immigration to the South, what's welcoming them or what might not be welcoming them to the South? Yeah. So I think some of the challenges that we have experienced and we have seen within families, I think that some of them are very systemic, like understanding and navigating systems like healthcare, the school system, transportation, taxes, um, all of that takes some time for people to understand. Even, you know, we have situations where families weren't aware of what were the bus stops to take the kids to school. I, I knew that there were parents that were afraid of accessing resources because they were afraid that their kids were going to be converted to Christianity uh, without their permission. And that actually was happening. It's different. So it's a whole like cultural education that people have to go through and understanding. Because as you know, we're 17% of the population. I mean, it's mm, not right. it's not a person here and there. So is that one of the ways that the refugee and immigrant community is changing the Charlotte and the North Carolina that you first arrived in? And what other ways are, are, are refugees and immigrants changing the Charlotte that, that you arrived in just a few years ago? Yeah, well, I think that one of the most clear things that I've seen that um, Charlotte has changed um, because we have so many immigrant refugees. When I came, like I said, I met my husband because I couldn't find my specialty. It was nowhere, right? Now I have so many options of where we would find that. You know, we have the Super G, we have Compare Foods, we have Wall Market. I mean, there's so many places and you can find food and the things from your home with so much accessibility now. I mean, it's just amazing. I think that's number one, personally. I also feel like the school systems and the county and the city, I believe that like I said, I mean, there's still a lot of work to do so that we're not an afterthought. Like in this, in the school system, I mean, there's a much bigger effort and focus on in the EL department and trying to support students that are newly arrived to the United States. Um, and I also have seen a much greater focus on the social emotional well-being and trying to hire and get funding to include, you know, social workers that are bilingual. What I would love to see from Charlotte, too, is just building up new leaders that are people of color so that we can ensure that every single new initiative is culturally sensitive, that is responsive to the needs of the families instead of somebody from the outside trying to tell us how we need to be addressed or helped. When you hear the phrase, the New South, what does that mean to you as someone who's immigrated here and someone who's really made a home here in the South? the New South, it's either a mosaic or a salad, however other analogy mm -hmm. we're going to use. But the melting pot was when, you know, we all came here, we all tried to be Americas in our own way, and this whole thing came out. Well, no, I mean, I, I want a New South where each of us can still be proud of our food, um, 
dress how we dress at home and and uh, proud of our flags and just talk about what makes us proud. That's the new stuff for me. It's curiosity. It's openness. Yeah, it's it's inclusivity, and and it's not just diversity, right? Because in, inclusivity is diversity with the effort, <laughs> and it's just being genuine about it, right? Right? I mean, um, so genuinely curious about cultures, um, it's what the new South is for me. Did you have any idea of what the South was before you got here? Did you choose Charlotte, or did Charlotte choose you? The, the random family chose me to come here. I had to look Charlotte in the map because I had no idea where it was. So um, living like half a world away, there was so much of the history of the United States in general that I, I didn't know. So if you think about it, I don't know who comes to the United States unless it's like, you know, in, um, an ambassador or a professor or something. A common world person like myself, I didn't know who MLK was. I didn't know. I knew, you know, about Kennedy because he's famous, but I didn't know the story. I didn't know he was shot. I didn't know so many things of the rich history that make Charlotte that they are. So I had to educate myself on the Civil War, the Confederate flag, none of that. So all that was a revelation for you? Everything. Again, you've talked a lot this afternoon about the history of where you live at, what you're doing right now. But now I want to ask you about where you see the South changing in the next 20, 30 years from immigration. How do you think immigration will change places like Charlotte and the South writ large over the next generation or so? Well, it's a, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I would love, I, of course, I mean, I would love that within the next 30 years, we can have another immigration reform, right? I mean, there has been people here that have been undocumented for 20 years, 20 years, you know, and... People may think that, you know, um, the undocumented person has a specific, you know, stereotype. I mean, that's not true. I mean, they're, number one, they're not all Spanish speaking. They're from all over the world. They're here. They have businesses. They go to school. They're bosses. They, I mean, they're your partners. I mean, it's, but why are they in the shadows still? So definitely I would love to see immigration reform 100%. Before we, we came on live for this interview, you mentioned Lino Messi. Um, so yeah. talk a little bit about Lino Messi being an MLS and in particular what that's meant for folks who are fans of the, the beautiful game in Charlotte. Oh, my gosh. Everything. It means everything. It really gave life to a lot of people that came from countries where soccer was their life. And this is what you did every weekend. And this is what you talked about. And this is what you got mad about. This is what you're ha- happy about. So they emotionally, social emotionally did so much for the immigrant community, I cannot tell you. But then having Messi in, in the United States, I mean, to me, I'm so excited, especially because, you know, Copa America is coming. We had Lionel Messi in Charlotte. Like, if you told anyone five years ago that Lionel Messi was going to be in Charlotte, we were like, crazy. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's huge. It's huge, and it brings a lot of inclusivity because soccer is soccer is life for a lot of us and i don't know if you know the panthers do the same to you guys <laughs> this is fascinating um and i love the story about the the tea i never knew that argentina had its own its own tea thank you thank you mm-hmm. our next guest is colton bain a staff attorney with the Community Legal Center's Immigrant Justice Program in Memphis, Tennessee. 
where he represents immigrants and refugees seeking legal entry into the United States. Colton is a lifelong native of Tennessee, a state that boasts one of the highest rates of immigrants and refugees moving to the South, especially immigrants from Africa. Our New South welcomes Colton Bain. So, uh, Colton, where are you? Um, uh, where are you from? Uh, where'd you go to school? So, I'm originally from a, a small rural farm town uh, in Northwest Tennessee called Dyersburg, Tennessee. I moved to to Memphis uh, about ten years ago uh, to continue my education. I went to University of Memphis for undergrad and University of Memphis Law School after that. So, go Tigers! <laughs> So you are a Southerner. I am, if you can't tell by the accent. (laughs) (laughs) And what was it like growing up in Dyersburg? And what's the difference now that you've moved on to Memphis? I would say in Dyersburg, it was, um, there was a lack of diversity. I mean, especially compared to Memphis, where here I meet people from all over the world. In Dyersburg, you you had your white population, you had your African-American population. And, and I later learned there was a large, you know, Hispanic, uh, Latino pa- population that was very secluded to themselves. I mean, we had our Mexican restaurants, of course, where people could practice their olas and gracias, but <laughs> that you, you didn't really see that, that, that you did not see people of ethnic backgrounds really out in public. In Memphis, that's that's very different. Like anywhere you go, I mean, there are just people from all over, from Central and South America, Europe, Africa, East Asia, the Middle East. And I, as somebody that's really interested in, in always learning about different cultures and different perspectives from people that grew up in completely different ways than I did, I just find that Memphis is really a gold mine for those sort of things. One of the things we've learned is that... Um Tennessee has become a huge uh, attraction to uh, to immigrants. I'm also curious as to what you've learned about what it is that has attracted them, not only to uh, this country, but particularly to the South. Um, in a place where you just described, where, where you grew up, you did not sense the diversity that you, you are now um, uh, immersed in as a, as a lawyer working in immigration law. There are definitely a couple of reasons that that come to mind, and one of the most common ones um, I hear is the climate. Uh, a lot of the people I work with are from warmer countries, and so the Cleveland, Ohio's, uh, the Maine's, a uh, bit too cold. You know, they prefer a little bit warmer weather, which I totally understand. I'm the same way. And secondly, and this is somewhat ironic, uh, is that the South is generally more conservative, um, traditional family values. A lot of immigrants actually fall into that category. And I've, I've always said that the irony of, of our politics is that I feel like if Republican, Republicans and conservatives were a little bit more immigrant friendly in their policies, I think that most of them would, would lean that way um, just for like school stuff and and of course especially from central and south america very catholic and even from the middle east like uh the muslims they're they're very fiscally conservative all right colton and again thanks for that answer and you know we're again happy to have you on the program i want to ask you a bit about the nuts and bolts of what you actually do as an immigration lawyer Mm -hmm. in memphis Uh, could you talk about how 
in particular your work and the work of the Community Legal Center for whom you work, how do they actually provide support to immigrants who are living in the Memphis area? Uh, the, the Community Legal Center has uh, multiple departments. I'm the director of the Immigrant Justice Program. There is also our civil program, our elder law program, and our pro se parents clinic. Uh, in my program specifically, we provide direct representation to immigrants regardless of whether they are doing what we call like affirmative applications, as in um, they're, they have not been caught by immigration in a sense, and they're applying with USCIS, uh, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, um, which is still a, kind of a, a subpart of the Department of Homeland Security, where we have staff members that are able to assist usually with those matters. I do some of that. Um, I, I just was in Nashville doing a lot of um, Afghan interviews with some people that were interpreters for U.S. military forces. But what I try to focus on just where my expertise lies and my interest in litigation is immigration court. Uh, so a lot of my work, um, I focus on people that are that the government is actively trying to remove. Interesting. So you mentioned that food is one of the big contributions of the immigrant community to uh, to Memphis and to, to Tennessee in general. Um, we also know that uh, immigrants have have generated a great deal of wealth um, in, in Tennessee. I think the last thing we saw was four billion dollars just in the Memphis metro metro area. So what is this booming population meant for the growth of, of urban Tennessee, um, it, as well as rural Tennessee, where you came from, if you, if you know anything about that, just the economic impact. It's been, it's been a great economic impact, you know, and something that a lot of people don't realize uh, when it comes to immigrants, documented or not, they're paying taxes. I mean, we oh, there's this misconception out there that if somebody doesn't have permission to be here or the proper work authorization, that it should they just they can't pay taxes, um, which is completely untrue. Um, you can get an individual taxpayer identification number, even if you don't have permission to work and you're not here lawfully, so to say. Um, you can still pay taxes, and every time I meet with a client or a potential client, I and if they tell me they're working, I'm asking, are you paying your taxes? Because a lot of times, you know, if it comes down to it, that's used as evidence, um, as good moral character, as we call it, or uh, they're a law-abiding citizen, so to say. But th there's that large contribution that at the end of the day, like a lot of those benefits, they really won't see in, in like retirement age. They're paying into a system that will never pay out to them. But it's often overlooked how many come and there are doctors, there are engineers, there are some lawyers. Now, Colton, I think that's a really interesting point you just brought up about the impact of immigration on the South, economically speaking. Uh, but as someone who is, of course, a native Southerner, uh, someone who I think after this podcast we could refer to as Mr. Memphis and an honorary member of Three <laughs> like Six it. Mafia at this point, um, I, I do want to ask you, since our show is called Our New South, when you hear that phrase, the New South, what does that actually mean to you as someone who was born and raised in the South? To me, that concept of su Southern hospitality, uh, I think that is the, the real 
thing that really comes to mind. We need to double down on that to be welcoming, to be caring. And, you know, since we're in the Bible Belt, to, to love thy neighbor, regardless of immigration status, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of creed, regardless of color, regardless of religion. Um, and so that that's what that New South brings to mind is like this concept of really bringing to life and doubling down and standing ten toes down on Southern hospitality. That's interesting because so there's still a tension between uh, the old South. I was kind of thinking this through earlier, which to me was hostile to people considered outsiders. Yes. And now you're working in the new South trying to fight against that old image and embracing and inviting outsiders. Um, Absolutely. That, that's, yeah, that's, that's um, interesting, but there's still that, still that tension. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, my hometown a, a couple of years ago, I mean, there's, there was a cross burning. Um, mm. I mean, wow. it's, it's not, it's not that long ago. Uh, I, you know, it's kind of hard to admit, but, you know, I have a, a great grandfather that was a proud Klansman. You know, this was a man that like, admittedly, and was proud to have participated in lynchings. Um, and so that's not who I am. And I hope that what I do every day makes him roll over in his grave. <laughs> so wow. that's, there, I have a personal dog in this fight with the old South of, of, of changing the perspective of the South. I mean, it, we need to really live up to what we talk about when we talk about Southern hospitality. We say we're part of the Bible Belt. Well, let's start acting like it. So then is there any irony in the fact that Tennessee uh, has almost half of the African immigrants? Well, the South has almost half of the African immigrants that are coming into the country. And mm -hmm. Tennessee, as a state, has a larger share of those than any other Southern state. Or is it just the fact that Africans have no... African immigrants really have no knowledge of this particular history of the South. I think it's a bit of both there. I mean, they definitely come here and I don't think they could, they might have heard about the American Civil War, or, you know, the, these vague stories of the past, but they, when they come here, um, again, they're looking for somewhere warm, you know, from what I understand, most places in Africa, a warmer climate. You don't want to go and move to Maine, moving from, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, that, that's a shock to the system there. Um, whether you're Rwandan, Somali, from Ghana, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, like there, there is a large African community here. And I mean, if you ever go to our international festivals, you've got to hit up their tables for the food. Um, <laughs> the biggest, the biggest beef with them all is who makes the best rice. Um, which, rice. Uh, yeah, right. uh, you know, and I, I love it all, you know, but whoever I'm talking to, their rice is my favorite. <laughs> as long as I can have some more. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, we're going to try to stay away from the jollof rice wars that usually happen on social media. <laughs> Maybe one one final question: so What do you see the, the role of of immigration in the in the New South over the next generation, quarter century? Like, where are we headed? I think immigrants are integral 
to it. I mean, we are kind of seeing the negative side effects of what I would call anti-immigrant policy in Florida. I mean, you have industries slowing to a halt because of the, what's the word, like the, the exodus of immigrants. We're, like, we're not even in exodus. They're not choosing to leave. They're being forced out. Um, I think that, you know, it's great that now we have the more discretionary policies under the current administration. Like whenever I have a case in court and the, the exercise of prosecutorial discretion by these ICE attorneys is great to have. A lot of times they don't want to waste their time and resources trying to deport somebody that, okay, they don't have papers, but they're law abiding. They, they provide for their families. They, they just work, you know, and I think that's the way it should be. You know, I, I have this radical concept of, you know, I, I'm not a fan of like to say open borders because I have people running from people in other countries and I don't want them being followed um, by, you know, the red shirts, the Colectiva of Venezuela, the brown shirts of the Ortega regime in Nicaragua, MS-13, Barrio 18. I mean, mm. there, 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 there's that oscillating balance of national security concerns, but also the, the humanitarian end of things where, you know, a lot of times if somebody presents themselves at the border, you know, the, if they're not detained or even if they are detained, they're given what's called a, a notice to appear in NTA, which is what puts them in immigration court and active removal. To me, I was like, my opinion is that, hey, do this secure security background. If there's no red flags. Give them a work permit. Let them in, you know, and I just think that that'd be the right way to go about it. But that's just a, a radical policy I come up with. Well, thank you so much. Again, I think Colton has done a wonderful job of bringing together the past, present, and potentially the future of the New South. And I want to thank you so much for joining us for this episode. This was incredibly informative. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Our final guest on today's episode of Our New South is Daniel Valdez, who serves as the Chief External Affairs Officer for Welcoming America in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcoming America is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to creating prosperous, inclusive communities across the United States and the world. Daniel himself is an immigrant, having been born in Mexico before settling in rural North Carolina at the age of 12. Our New South welcomes Daniel Valdez. Well, Daniel, thanks very much for uh, doing this. Good to uh, meet you and um, glad to see you doing the work that you do. Um, I always like to have folks introduce themselves to our audience. So where are you originally from and when did you arrive in Charlotte? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for for having me and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Um, I was born in Acapulco, Mexico, and um, went uh, when I was three years old, my family moved to California, Southern California. Um as many families where I'm from were moving for more opportunities, uh, jobs, um, economic security, all of those things. And when I was about 12 years old, um, my family moved to North Carolina, um, to uh, Cabarrus County. Um, I grew up in a town called Midland, North Carolina, which is about 30, 40 minutes from Charlotte. And um, was in middle school when I came I'd never really heard of North Carolina, um, but it was a place where um, my parents felt that they could um, raise their kids. I'm the oldest of three, and they could buy a home and um, and yeah, have have 
more opportunities for for their kids. And so that's why they came. There was there's lots of jobs here in construction in particular. Um, and my story is not very dissimilar to many many other uh, Latinos in particular that I uh, met growing up uh, here in, in North Carolina. And it's uh, sort of a a larger story of migration to the South and sort of the evolution of, of immigration here in, in the southern part of, this, of the country. And was your upbringing um, in North Carolina, a place that you had never heard of until you got there, enjoyable? You know, I, I have uh, over the years become a strong uh, sort of proponent of of being in the South and working in the South and, and working on issues around racial equity and immigration. I, I love the South. I love North Carolina. I've grown to, to love it. But yeah, I mean, it was definitely different. Um, when I came to North Carolina, you know, I remember because of what I looked like being put in ESL classes, even though I didn't need ESL and I spoke both languages. I remember being told by fellow students that I um, that we were in America and we spoke English here, not Spanish. Uh, whenever I spoke Spanish with other, uh, with very few that we had in our school, but we had a, a few uh, Spanish speakers as well. Um, so it was for me, I think, a time where I felt the othering, right, that we hear so often. But it was also a place where I think I was able to understand better the experience of immigrants in a much deeper way, I think, than what I um, had experienced. And so how does this move you then to do the work that you are doing today? And please tell our listeners exactly what that work is. Yeah. So I currently work uh, for an organization called Welcoming America. We're a national organization and we work with local communities on helping them create more welcoming and inclusive communities for newcomers, particularly immigrants and refugees. And the organization was born out of the work in Tennessee, in the South, to combat anti-immigrant rhetoric and anti-immigrant policies and legislations that were happening due to an increase of immigrants, particularly Latino immigrants. But so to me, this is personal. Um, I have a a story that I think sort of represents the, the growth of the organization as well. I am curious because you've already alluded to some of the challenges that you and your family faced moving to Charlotte, moving to North Carolina. Could you talk a bit more about what you're seeing from immigrants today in terms of some of the issues they face moving to North Carolina and the adjustment period in terms of becoming part of that culture in Charlotte? It just depends. Every experience is different. I think for Charlotte, um, what I've seen over the past 15 plus years that I've been in this work is that there's been um, that we, you know, that we've made some some real progress in thinking about how as a, as a community uh, and how different sectors of our community are responding to the changing demographics of our city and to the needs that those changes bring with them. I, I certainly think that there's more opportunities now than there was when I was growing up. Just thinking about, for example, access to to food. I remember that there were very little places to go to get food that was that was from Mexico. There was one Mexican store. There was one Mexican bakery. And we would come on the weekends because like I said it was like a 30, 40 minute drive. And for me, it was on, on the weekends we would come and we would do some shopping. We would get some bread from the Mexican bakery, get some some specific items. Now you can go to any part of the city and there are compare foods everywhere. There's Mexican stores, not just Mexican, ethnic stores from all over, restaurants. I mean, I think you're seeing, you know, the city um, has grown and has provided more 
opportunities when you think about, you know, um, yeah, what, what the city is looking like. It's, it's more and more looking like um, the diversity that exists. Speaking of improvements, um, what are the most specific challenges for immigrants in North Carolina in general, the South maybe in general, but in Charlotte in particular? I think there's a there's there's a number of challenges, and I think these are some themes that you'll see. I think throughout, um, certainly depending on on who you are. If you if you come here and you're you don't speak the language, there are some barriers there around language. That's that's always something that I think happens quite often. Um, certainly, I was mentioning earlier that North Carolina. Um, state uh, state laws and policies have significant impacts on people's ability for to achieve higher education if they don't have um, a certain immigration status. And then, of course, there's issues around, um, you know, su- suffering, you know, different kinds of discrimination, whether it's housing discrimination, whether it's um, entrepreneurship and like uh, business opportunities, uh, economic mobility, all of those things are things that are impacting folks and, and, and newcomers, uh, particularly immigrants and refugees. And so. And I think as, uh, as both an adopted son of the South and as someone who's so heavily involved with Welcoming America, you're well positioned to talk about how immigrant groups have really changed the South as well. So could you talk a bit about what you're seeing in Charlotte and across the region in terms of how immigrant groups, number one, are changing the South? And, and number two, you mentioned briefly Afghan refugees. So if you don't mind, could you tell our audience about some of the immigrant groups that are part of this current wave of immigration to the South the last five to 10 years or so. We mentioned that Welcoming America sort of came out of the work that was happening in Tennessee and in the South um, and in the Midwest. Um, we saw, um, you know, big uh, increases of, of uh, foreign-born populations uh, all over the South and North Carolina is, was one of those states. And, you know, right now, you know, the the number of foreign-born population has has grown tremendously in North Carolina. And um, we're seeing, too, a diversification of those communities. So uh, out of all immigrants in North Carolina, um, about 7% of them are from Africa. 27% of those immigrants are from Asia. Um, We're seeing an increase in folks from Europe, 10%. 30% are from Mexico alone. Um, and so we we know that there's um, there, there are huge communities um, Mexico, India, Honduras, El Salvador, China. Those are sort of the big uh, countries where um, folks are from in North Carolina. And I assume it's being shaped into this idea that that we have in for this podcast this idea of the New South. And you are very familiar with the the museum, so I'm interested to find out um, how the museum played a role in your understanding of this idea of the New South? And also, maybe before we even get to that, uh, what was your idea of the South upon arriving here as as a kid? I mean, did you have any notions of it at all? Yeah, I mean, I got to say I was very young, so I don't know that I had a lot of ideas about it. Um, and so, you know, I started understanding more about the, the South in um, you know, as, as I was growing up, as I was, you know, living here. So I, I, I'd say that I came, I personally came, and I, I don't think that's the case depending on what age you come here, but I was, you know, very young and right. um, didn't really know much. Um, but w- what I do know is that the Levine Museum um, has played really an important role here in, in Charlotte. 
uh, in not only documenting the changes, but being able to be a space where um, where folks can come and and have you know meaningful discussions um, about those changes. And the museum has served as a platform to um, to help. Uh, folks getting better understanding to educate our community about the changes that are happening in our community and to contextualize it in sort of this broader history that, you know, the South has always had, you know, our country is a, is a country and it's history of migration. Um, and migration has always shaped um, our communities, whether they're migrants from Germany or folks that were being forced to be, uh, to come here through the transatlantic slave trade. The second part of that is, what is this idea of the the new south to to you, especially given that you are part and parcel of the new south? Yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of this new south is that that we are a much more diverse community than what people outside of the south want to think of us. That we um, are a community that's very diverse, and that that we are really, I think, in a lot of ways, exemplifying the need to collaborate with other communities because, um, you know, one of the things that I've always talked about when I was organizing here in the South is that we, you know, we have pockets of populations, whether you're, um, you know, Latino or immigrant or Southeast Asian, queer, but probably not in the huge numbers where you ha- where you are able to do things and, and move policy or move mm-hmm. change along by yourself. You're forced to work with other communities. And I think that that's one some, some of the things that I really appreciate about growing up here is that um, that I've really uh, been fortunate enough to understand really the power of collaborating and working with other communities um, in order to see advancement and progress for all of our communities. We've been talking a lot about the past and the present in terms of immigration to the South, but I'd like to ask you now about where you see this all changing the South in the future. So say 20, 25 years from now, where do you see the South, and in particular, Charlotte being changed by not only immigrants coming to the South, but also immigrants staying in the South and really changing the region. How do you think the region will change in the next 20 and 25 years? I mean, it's it's hard because I think about, you know, 25 years ago when I was here and I just, I just couldn't imagine what I'm seeing today in this city. And um, I just feel like every weekend there's like three or four different like festivals happening on and events that I just have a hard time um, going to all of those. Um, and so I think um, what, what I think about this city is seeing a vibrant community, uh, one that uh, celebrates our cultural um, and sort of um, immigrant heritage uh, of the communities that, that are here. One that also understands that we have an opportunity here to create a, a city um, that provides opportunities for all, regardless of where you come from and regardless of which zip code you were born in. Could you talk a little bit more about how immigrants have really changed the culture of Charlotte? Uh, and I got to be honest, I, I happen to notice on your, your Twitter page, you have a banner for Charlotte FC as well. Um, <laughs> and, and how that's that's becoming a really big deal for folks in the Charlotte area. So talk a bit about how that, that cultural process has really changed during your lifetime. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've, there's there's been such a, a blooming of opportunities and and places for folks, and I can't keep up with the new restaurants and new places that are that are coming up. And 
you know, I think that that's, that's great. I think that that means that there's different um, ways that folks can, can really get a taste of Charlotte in a, in a way that maybe they haven't before. Um, and, and I, and I've seen that grow and the soccer piece, you know, it's funny because we are a huge soccer family and we, um, we're all, you know, we're from, we're from Mexico, from Acapulco, but we all have different soccer teams that we root for in Mexico. Right. Um, and so my two brothers have their own soccer teams and I have my soccer team that me and my dad like and so forth. But with Charlotte having an FC team, our entire family is a Charlotte FC family and we all have season tickets and we all go to the games and we all get together and we've been able to bond over that. And, you know, we can disagree on all of these uh, soccer teams in the Mexican league, but we all agree that Charlotte FC is definitely <laughs> our MLS team. Um, and, I, and I do want to note, there is an irony here about Charlotte FC in the sense that it seems that whether you're in Charlotte or Atlanta or Nashville right now, you much rather talk about your MLS team and your NFL team, but <laughs> I, I digress. <laughs> but uh, Daniel, again, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us because you've given us a great perspective on what it means to not just be an immigrant in North Carolina, but to be a true son of the South in a very different way from what we're used to hearing. So again, thank you so much for this interview. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. For our closing reflection on this week's podcast, we have best-selling author and New York Times columnist, Tracy McMillan Cotton who was featured on our premiere episode of Our New South, speaking about how the rise in immigration is changing the political landscape of the South today. Migration is going to be one of the biggest challenges to how we understand organizing and place and identity in the South. And there's, you know, a lot of amazing new work happening around language and ethnicity across the South, and it's still a lot left to be done. But we don't yet fully tap into that, certainly not politically. There are a lot of incentives for us not to do that. I think the tact that unfortunately both parties have sort of relied on is that, you know, you know the sort of political divisions of a black-white binary in the South. And so both sides, I think right now, are invested in maintaining those. You know, after listening to our guests for this episode of Our New South and thinking a bit more about Tressie's quote, it's pretty clear to me that there's a lot left to be said about how immigrants are changing the South. Of course, we all understand how immigrants were changing the food of the South, changing the culture of the South to an extent. But the big, big question is, how will immigrants change the face of politics in the South? Now, that is a major question that I'm excited to see the answer to in the years and decades to come. You know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear, but it's like this is South got something to say. Thank you for tuning in. Our New South is brought to you by the Levine Museum of the New South in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks to the generous support of the Knight Foundation. Our New South is produced by Next Chapter Podcast. Written and produced by Byron Hunter. The editor and sound designer is Kyle Murdoch. Executive producers are Jeremiah Tittle and Frankie Abbott. Our technical producer is Brian Douglas. With special thanks to Levine team members Alexander Pinares, Karen Sutton, and Cliff Whitfield. Please follow the show, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Learn more at ncpodcast.com forward slash Our New South and museumofthenewsouth.org.
Next Chapter Podcasts.